Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm discussing Government Through Culture in the Contemporary French Right with Professor Jeremy O'Hearn from the University of Warwick. So, welcome to Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Jerry O'Hearn, who's from the Centre for Cultural Policy Studies at the University of Warwick, about his new book, Government Through Culture and the Contemporary French Right. Welcome to Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, discussing Government Through Culture and the Contemporary French Right with Professor Jeremy O'Hearn from the University of Warwick. So welcome to Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Jerry O'Hearn, who's from the Centre for Cultural Policy Studies at the University of Warwick, about his new book, Government Through Culture and the Contemporary French Right, uh, which is published by Palgrave Macmillan. So welcome to the podcast. Okay, thanks for inviting me. Um, this is a really interesting book because, in some ways, it, it, it's a sort of sequel to a book you you wrote, um, I guess, sort of five or six years ago now, um, which looked at cultural policy in France um, from the perspectives of the left. So, could, can you tell me a bit about why you've turned to the contemporary French right um, and where this kind of overall project has come from? Okay, well, overall, in the very long term, I started off doing. Sort of French German literature when I was a student, into French intellectual history, and then I came to French society and politics. And I guess I always looked at it from the perspective of arts, culture, the links between them. And way back, that was the time when sort of language in its pomp and la politique du was very prominent. Uh, that's definitely, in my view, not the case now. Strictly arts policies is not politically uh, that prominent. Um, but I've remained convinced in France, anyway, that the link between politics and culture is very important, and that to find those sort of culture-shaping policies of the kind that maybe Langlois incarnated, you have to go look for it elsewhere. And that's really been my work for the last 10 years or so. And to start with, a bit like you mentioned just now, I was looking at that from the perspective, I guess, of the left, because classically we tend to think that the left are concerned with cultural issues and the right are not that preoccupied with them. And I was quite interested in the position that intellectuals took, because in France, intellectuals are supposed to be politics, politi- political, but not get involved in the nitty-gritty party politics. So I was interested in some intellectuals that did get involved in that sort of nitty, nitty-gritty. Um, I guess now that we're all told to be impactful and so forth all the time, that's in a sense almost become um, a, a default position. Uh, now, when I was writing that book, I was conscious the more I wrote it that there was this galaxy of the right uh, and that it would be interesting to try and see how, how that fitted into my problematic. Um, at the same time, I, uh, while I was writing it, you had Chirac and Antipi, Sarkozy being very prominent, not so much the intellectuals, but it just struck me that they, far from neglecting culture, um, they were paying a lot of attention to it, particularly Sarkozy, even if I'd have to go and find that attention outside arts policy for sure. And that's why I kind of turned, I suppose, my attention to the right, and it was quite an interesting time to do it. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that gives rise to, uh, to the two things that frame the book. I think one is that sense of going to look for um, cultural policy, which uh, is grounded in the implicit, explicit uh, division in cultural policy, which you've, you've written about quite a lot. And then the other thing is, is, is the period, uh, 2002 to 2012, which, um, you know, as you say, is, is a very kind of rich and interesting period. So I wonder if we could take those two uh, frames in turn. So the theoretical starting point of um, implicit and explicit, and then why is this 10 years so interesting? Yeah, no, those are, those are very good questions. I've taken one and then, yeah. then covered if that's okay. On the implicit, explicit, it's a kind of... Um, I'm quite conscious it's, it's almost no longer my terms in a, in a sense, you know, that some other people have taken it up and so much the better and some people have done it in a sort of um, more restrictive sense, looking at the implicit effects of arts policy and some have used it in a much more maximal um, way, looking at, I don't know, not state organisations but private organisations and what have you. Um, that's all fine with me, and there's, there's critical debate about whether it's any use at all as well, and that's all fine with me. Uh, my use in some ways in my actual research tends to be more, I suppose, in the middle. I, I started using the term to analyse governmental policies in particular, and so that's what I tend to do. There's no reason why everybody else has to follow that, no reason at all, but uh, that's what I tend to do. Um, and um, I really devised it to try to come to terms with a particular problem to do with accounting for contemporary France. I mean, I think Bourdieu is somewhere to understand concepts. It's sometimes quite useful to see the problem they were trying to solve in the first place. And that was that once, go back to the 80s, early 90s, explicit cultural policy in France was clearly an arts policy, but it was also a culture-shaping policy. And it seemed to me that after that, arts policy remains important, particularly for the artistic field. But in terms of the culture-shaping policies, the policies that are going to work on people's norms, their attitudes, their beliefs, that remains very important, I think, in French politics. But you have to go and look for it in other places. Um, so, in a sense, in the book itself, I don't talk a lot of I, I use it to frame it, the explicit, implicit. But if I had to say, you know, where are my theoretical... I don't know, um, reference points, uh, you know, way below what he could do. But I'd be thinking about somebody like Stuart Hall looking at um, Thatcher in the 1980s or the Cultural Revolution in the London fronts, um, just as a way of positioning what I do. And that, uh, it's interesting actually because um, later on we'll talk about hegemony and you know, the kind of the idea of shaping culture. Um, and, and why is that, that decade, that 2002-2012, so interesting as an example of this? Okay. Um, I'm conscious that most of your listeners won't be necessarily familiar with France. No, but possibly not. Talk about it yeah. like, so I'll give some UK equivalents. So, or, or American. Or well. American equivalents. I suppose UK is what I'm natively mm. most familiar with. But um, So the 2002-12 decade would, would have a certain political self-evidence about it, a bit like 97 to 2010 being New Labour years, 79 to 90, Thatcherite years, 2002 to 2012 at political level. It's an epoch, as it were. It's a clear right-wing rule, so you've got the often two right-wing presidents. The nature of the presidency changes quite a lot. Mm. If only, you know, the fact that it becomes a five-year presidency 
some ways makes it more strategic. It reduces from seven years, but it coincides with legislatures. Um, and it's also quite a good political spectacle because you have two rights. It's mm. a bit like Heath Thatcher, yeah. um, Cam, um, Johnson, what have you today. Um, so at a political level, it's quite interesting. At a cultural level, I think it's quite interesting as well, um, for two or three reasons. Partly because it questioned for me, but I think it should question more broadly, that political shorthand that I think tends to ascribe to the left interest, preoccupation with cultural matters, and a right um, preoccupation just with the cash nexus, as it were, or business or whatever. Um, I think both Chirac and Sarkozy developed very clearly cultural fronts, okay, uh, very different cultural fronts, Chirac almost as a compensation for not having anything else to do, but Sarkozy to amplify what he was already doing. And Sarkozy, interestingly, described what he was doing as following the lessons of Gramsci himself. So um, that was quite interesting, that sort of explicit nature of it. And it seemed to be a decade where um, the tectonic plates of kind of that common sense in that Stuart Hall perspective shifted, a bit like he suggested it did over that chap. Um, can I give just one very short quote that I, want, yeah, yeah. I wanted to make it the epithet of the book, but they wouldn't let me because you, <laughs> you have to pay extra copyright or something like this. Uh, but to get a sense of what I was imagining I was doing, this is Stuart Hall back in 1980 saying the field of culture is a sort of constant battlefield, a battlefield where no once and for all victories are obtained, but where there were always strategic positions to be won and lost. And it seemed a good period, I thought, mm. 2002 to twelve. I understand that. And actually, it's interesting that um, that comment about you know there isn't a decisive victory, but there are things to be won and lost. And actually, all of the examples in the book illustrate that really, really perfectly. I think actually, from um, reforms to television, education reforms, um, you know, some of which are almost kind of settled by the right, but some of which just don't go anywhere at all and, and fail. And we, and we might get into um, a few of those. Uh, over the course of the conversation. I think the place to start would be um, that element um, of French society that is perhaps most well-known from um, contemporary political debates around the role of the state and its relationship to religion. And so obviously, um, you know, you talk about uh, laicity as being, you know, a really core idea to French society in the first chapter, but you talk about how it's reconfigured um, in a variety of different ways over the period the book is interested in. Okay. Um, yeah, laicity is one of those words where I kind of use it to, li- I could talk about it as I know, secularism or something, um, but I deliberately keep it in that slightly strange sounding word in English, laicity. And so people say, well, what is it? Why is it important? And I guess there's a very short answer, which is useful for clarity's sake. I mean, a slightly longer answer about kind of what it is, what it represents, that that will explain better why it becomes important. The short answer is, you want to translate laicity, laicity, easiest translation is political secularism, okay? Uh, How you separate the state out from religion. And to understand what it means, you can contrast, its original contrast is with, not with religion, but with clericalism. So the idea that the clerics, as it were, of religious institutions shouldn't have power over the state and vice versa. Uh, you can also contrast it to secularisation more generally, which is just people becoming less religious, less it is a particular state 
Hodson. Um, that's the short answer. And if that was the only answer, it would, you know, there wouldn't be much to uh, run with in terms of um, cultural polemics, uh, hegemonic kind of um, manipulation and so forth. The longer answer, I think, is that it's also in France a political totem. Okay? We think we don't know what laicity means, but the French must. But there's this ongoing conflict of interpretation around what it can mean. For 150 years, end of the 19th, most of the 20th century, it was associated with the broad left. Okay? And the right was associated with traditionalism, Catholicism, monarchy, etc. I'm simplifying. But until 1989, that was the lines of division. 1989 life gets complicated and interesting for an observer. 1989, you see the first prominent emergence really of Islam as a, um, a kind of flashpoint, really. And the lines of division okay, around that issue start to shift. The left starts to divide, firstly, between those who are defending the right of girls to wear headscarves, but the right to plurality more generally, and the harder anti-clerical left that wants things religious should have nothing to do with the state. Um, so the left starts to divide. Um, the right starts to reconfigure. Okay, it didn't really want to have anything to do with the polemic to start with because it thought it might impinge on Catholicism, but its sense of protecting the nation against Islam from without, you start to get what I guess you political scientists might call an advocacy coalition coming together of left and right actors. And that's what gradually over 10 or 15 years leads to the famous headscarf ban in 2004 under Chirac. Okay? And by that stage, laicity has really become part of the sort of mainstream right uh, uh, agenda. Um, and you might think that Sarkozy was really hard line on that, but actually Sarkozy is really quite an interesting figure to carry. Uh, or to look at through here, he was opposing. He was a, he opposed the ban on headscarves, um, and in, in fact, you know, Chirac tried to isolate him with that. And throughout that time, Sarkozy tried to adopt a more accommodationist view uh, on Islam when he was Home Minister. So he set up a Muslim Council and so forth in France to try and actually bring Muslim representatives within the state, which is quite a fraught enterprise. Um, we forget that now because the second bit of the big reconfiguring, which nobody could have predicted really, you know, 20 years ago, was its shift even further to the right. And Sarkozy does a kind of bolt fast. Part of his view, part of his agenda in accommodating Islam was to have a political way into that population to manage it. But that proved spectacularly inefficacious in the famous 2005 riots when his Muslim networks, as it were, were unable to have any effect on the, the rioting youth and so forth. And if anything, Socrates does a, a vault fast, takes a much more law and order, hardline uh, view on uh, Islam, and starts to embrace this weird new form of laicite, laicite that embraces Catholicism. There's a famous visit he does to the Pope uh, in, uh, I think it's 2007, with a lot of pomp and ceremony. And he starts to construe both laicity and Catholicism together in his terms as part of a wider French national culture and insists all the more on that so that he can take Islam largely out of that solution, out of that. And I suppose in 
quote Gramscian terms, this seems like it for two or three years, this seems like a very shrewd move, until of all people, the National Front see, you know, see this new recast licensee as a perfect vehicle for them. And you know, they had nothing to do with licensee for you know, 30 years, okay? And use it as a much more hard-edged anti-Muslim tool and embrace all the rhetoric of republicanism and so forth. All that, so that's a bit of a long... No, no, um, But the, the sense of how within 20, 25 years, Lysite, it, it's, it was a kind of object of a smash-and-grab hegemonic ploy from Chirac, and a different one from Sarkozy, then a different one from Marine Le Pen, the daughter of Jean-Marie Jean, Jean Le Pen, um, in that sort of rightward drift of this totem. Everybody wants to be seen as the legitimate interpreter of it. Um, and it continues as it, you know, it, we could take it past 2012, but um, that's probably enough for the, for the moment. And, and it, it, that sense of, uh, I guess, kind of differences within and between um, the different modes of, of, of the right um, in, in French politics is, is really interesting. And, and I mean, th- this comes up a bit in the chapter about education, but it comes up really, really clearly um, in the chapter about television. And, you know, you can think about this as the contrasting styles of uh, Chirac and Sarkozy, but also in terms of how they deal with the political economy of of French television as well. So I wonder if you could talk through um, the example of that division through through television. Okay. Um, Yeah, I'll try and do that. I mean, when I was writing this two or three years ago, I was thinking, you know, present... Sarkozy's television policy and it seemed like this paradox that I'd have to get over to a, an English audience but in terms of recent discussions around the BBC and so forth it, it may uh, what may strike them is the parallels you know, to, to some degree um, and like you suggested in your question you've got two important aspects I think of the television uh, issue as a culture shaping tool one is the political economy of television and one is the performance on television yeah what was it you call it the, the Sarkozy show yeah uh, very much you know he was a, for, you know for two or three years not now not really now interestingly um, but he was the star of French television not just French political television okay um, well I guess in terms of the political economy of television we see Chirac I mean, you have this weird thing in French politics, which we're not used to, where you have an effective head of state, the president, but you have the prime minister underneath him. And where Chirac tended to use this was he would subcontract the less popular economically kind of liberal, neoliberal policies of the prime minister, and he would try and set himself up as, as this defender of um, a kind of cultural block or what. And in a sense, his television policies are a, a little bit like that, so continuity, defending public service, etc. It's not what he did when he was on the make as a politician, but once he was a president, that's what he tended to be, well, in a sense, condemned to because of the impotence elsewhere. Sarkozy, his kind of political economy reform is more interesting. I talk about it as a dual um, cultural policy. Um, and it's certainly, you know, we'd now, I think, be familiar with it, but it really wrong-footed the opposition to start with. Um, and this was how he tended to perform in television as well. He would surprise people with an announcement and then introduce another surprise yeah, afterwards, yeah, yeah. So this sort of thing. And you can see it as a kind of, um, you can see it at work in the, in the presentation of the policy itself. So his dual uh, policy, as it were, was first to, far from apparently attacking the role of, 
cultural and public television as you'd expect, appearing to encourage and indeed enforce it by taking away, decommercialising French public television. Unlike British television, public television, it has adverts, you see. So Sarkozy appeared and he said, I want it to have a much more clearly cultural role and we should take the adverts out so that market ratings don't determine what goes on, which is, you know, wind back 12 years, it's what you find in Bourdieu, mm-hmm. sur la télévision. So this is Sarkozy as Bourdieu, okay? Um, of course, now we can also interpret it as Sarkozy as John Whittingdale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sort of thing. Um, because we can understand that... Um, the real reason why he was uh, pursuing that agenda was because his extensive connections in private television, he was very close to the movers and shakers in, you know, closer than Blair was to murder, for example, to the movers and shakers in French private commercial television. And they had been telling him precisely to do that so that they could pick up both the advertising and uh, uh, lose that sort of ratings competitor um, that was French public television at the time. So I said, dual cultural policy, because that's what he did in terms of public television, okay? Um, and his double surprise there was that he decided to take upon himself the, the act of directly nominating the head of public television, so in a sense turning that into his direct vessel, uh, but also this elaborate exchange relations with commercial uh, television that he wanted to make international champions. That's why that was also, for him, the bigger... French media enterprises became the better because they would stand on the global stage and um, uh, defend French interests and project French uh, influence. Um, so that was that was Sarkozy in terms of the political economy of television. Um, I could say a little bit about his performance role. Yeah, I, I, I found his, his performance role fascinating because it, it, it is such... Um, I suppose the, the British or American comparison would be with a politician who, perhaps for the first time in France, is you know, comfortable within the age in which he is broadcasting. So the, the American equivalent would be you know, Kennedy on television or, or something like this, whilst you know, at the same time allowing him to push through quite significant reforms. Um, so you, know, you have this kind of symbolic Sarkozy show presence which, as you say, wrong foots opponents because he's you know, seemingly um, making these statements that are allowing people to uh, get what they want about decommercialization and stuff like this, when actually the, the byproduct is strongly kind of nationalist, uh, you know, outward-facing, almost, and we'll talk about this in subsequent chapters, almost a kind of a return to an imperialist uh, form of, of French cultural, uh, cultural policy. So, yeah, I'm interested to know how is... I guess his kind of you know presentation of self, his high performances uh, influence that. Yes, that's an interesting question. But I don't want to go too far back. But with the Kennedy, the obvious contrast would be uh, De Gaulle. Mm. Well, not really a contrast, a comparison. Uh, people think De Gaulle when he came into office, he was already sixty-eight. They think he must have been past it. But he was a past master in television. But he could control television. He owned the only television there was. Um, after de Gaulle, as government control of television started to recede, yes, it tend, the presidents tend to have rare uh, interventions following the theory that that would make them more resonant. Sarkozy really went to the opposite extreme to say Chirac and looked for media saturation. Okay, 
media, a kind of ongoing storytelling, extraordinary, you know, particularly in the first year or two, extraordinarily uh, intense. Um, and I suppose I'm trying to think of comparisons that would make his role clearer. I mean, you could contrast this, but you could compare with Kennedy. You could, you could think of somebody like Blair, who was smoothly telegenic. Mm. Sarkozy was not smoothly telegenic. He was kind of divisively telegenic. He didn't know what he was going to do quite often, and quite often he would seek those lines of clivage, as he puts it, lines of lines of division. Um, so, for example, the, the press conference, people knew he was going to take advertising away from um, public television, and they'd turn along to the press conference. That's already quite surprising. And then he surprises them again by saying, and I'm going to nominate the head of television henceforth. Um, so, yeah, there was an era of kind of unpredictability. It wasn't always, you know, you get the sense of Blair always being on message, mm. as it were. Uh, Sarkozy was not calculatedly off people's expectations quite often, and in the end that started to count against him. Yeah. He always wanted to transgress, break the taboos, and people felt he was cheapening the role of the president. Famous telling people, to, well, not on television, but losing his rag a little bit. I, I, I might pick up on some of that, actually, because this this is another interesting um, contrast within uh, your analysis of the right and these two, two rights, but also um, that sense of, um, yeah, cleavages or transgression coming through in the attitudes of French history. Um, and particularly around the idea that French history would be constructed not as something that had a you know a colonial past to be uh, thought through and, and you know perhaps put to one side and hopefully forgotten, um, but rather that you know I think you call it sort of anti-repentance um, and Sarkozy's you know plans for uh, particular cultural institutions that would essentially say that you know France has done wonderful things we should not be ashamed. Um, so I'm interested to know how that, yeah, that kind of um, that break within the right, but also that, that continuity of both um, his personality and his approach to French history manifest themselves. Yeah, now I was conscious writing this book that when you're looking at culture and the right, his, I mean, history is important anyway in um, in the way French politics works, and quite often in the other chapters, I'm having to give a historical backdrop yeah. to start with. Um, why is that? Because I have to give English readers a sense of, if you like, the, the structures of expectation or anticipation that hang around some of these issues like laicite, like television. And yes, yeah, so a history is important as well. And it seems to me um, almost to have, in the division of labour between what the president does and the prime minister does, um, they talk about certain domains being ascribed to the presidency. And it seems to me that that preoccupation with national history has gradually become one of those domains. Now, in terms of, for example, the colonial or the obscure past we talked about, and it's not just the colonies, it's France's role in World War II, which is uh, important too. Um, the tradition really up till, you know, through de Gaulle, through Mitterrand, had been to skate over some of the more murky elements of France's past. Um, so de Gaulle tended to present France in World War II as, uh, you know, a nation of just resistors. Um, and uh, Mito himself, although he challenged it in some ways, didn't challenge that particular line. What you get in our decade we're looking at, or really in 
Chirac already from the mid-90s, just two very different approaches to that national past. Um, Chirac, as part of his sort of almost slightly left-leaning cultural package, tries to, for the first time, face up to those dark parts of France's past and to integrate them very self-consciously into the national memory. So he does that with, in terms of France's complicity with the Germans, in terms of um, um, uh, the, the Jews in, the, in, in World War II. He does it in relation to the Algerian war. Um, Chirac also inaugurates, which the socialist government before him had, hadn't dared to do. He sets up a museum for immigration in Paris. Okay, And so he tries to, and this is one of the things, we, I mean, he ran into problems with it, notably with his own right majority, uh, but he tries to take on board some of those more difficult parts of the national past. Um, Sarkozy, well, the continuity is there insofar as history was just as prominent for Sarkozy, but he builds it very differently and um, offensively in more than one word almost. But, you know, there, there's a kind of sense of offence uh, there and it's very much him and his scriptwriters. You have to, you know, what Gramsci would call his organic intelligentsia around him, very important in this, uh, but setting up a vision of France's past that, kind of acrobatically includes everyone from the revolutionaries to the old monarchy, from the communist resistors to the uh, sort of royalist right of the early 20th century, includes everybody except... Yeah. I mean, some, some of the quotes in the book are fascinating about, you know, we, uh, what's it, we, we've never given into the totalitarian uh, temptation and then, you know, goes through the kind of uh, decolonizing process is actually, you know, a, a triumph of uh, French values and, you know, talking um, later on about, you know, the values of the Republican right to uh, equity, order, merit, work, responsibility, which both, you know, on the one hand, essentially repudiates uh, responsibility that the French state might have uh, for its past, but also at the same time sets up new lines of division. No, absolutely. And almost, I mean, you said that decolonisation as a triumphant process, you might almost say colonisation yeah, yeah. as a triumphant yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, process. Um, and it's uh, striking how consciously that was done. Um, it's almost like history in the French context. It's like this orchestra, if you like, that politicians have at their disposal and that they play. And Sarkozy tried to play every, every bit of it, not always uh, convincingly, and he ran into problems with historians, notably, um, but it's, that's the most, and I don't really resurrect in the meat of the book this implicit, explicit distinction, but that's his most explicit cultural policy, I think. He frames it in cultural terms. He even theorises it, or at least people like Guano, who was his scriptwriter, theorised it, not in terms of Gramsci, but in terms of Lévi-Strauss. And again, it's not usual in Britain to be looking at a right-wing government and to find explicit references to cultural theory yeah, yeah. Uh, therein. But no, he would feature in his actual speeches, so that, that was interesting to and, follow. And he tries to manifest itself in a, in a museum project as well, which, which ultimately fails. Yes, that as well is um, part of this escalation of prominent cultural policy to the level of the president in France. You can, you can take that back to the 70s and 80s. Anybody who's been to Paris, how its skyline has changed with what the French call their grand projects, um, you know, Pompidou, Giscard d'Estaing, Mitterrand, each of these dozen cultural projects is a bit like a Millennium Dome, mm. as it were, in its own right. Um, 
Shirak had one, Sarkozy wanted one. It's almost what every president wanted um, or had to have. Um, and his one was going to be a kind of museum of national history. And what's interesting about that at the, in the end is that it fails. The interesting thing about it is it's, I think it's justificatory rhetoric, which follows some of the themes we were, we were looking at there. It's elaborated again by this um, organic intelligentsia around him, as it were. Um, and uh, yes, the fact that in the end, he runs into trouble, if you like, the traditional intelligentsia, the academic historians who, who, who don't like this, the fact that it's so clearly politicised and so clearly defined in national terms when professional historians as a rule are trying to, at the very least, relativise the salience of national frontiers and often you know, we face them, perhaps problematically face them, I think, altogether. Um, so yes, it runs into the sand, but that was Sarkozy's most personal cultural policy move, if you like, and its failure is an interesting, an interesting story to follow. The final case study also has that sense of, of kind of uh, the limits um, of cultural policy, but um, but I think what I'd, I'd like to, to draw out by way of conclusion is um, almost to put it bluntly, you know. Did any of these things work? You know, would you say that that kind of hegemonic project succeeded? Um, you know, is the question of um, French government, um, whether done through explicit or implicit cultural policy, one of now, you know, the left starting from a very different terrain? Um, so, you know, the equivalent would be in the States, the argument that Clinton starts from, you know, a very, very further right position than, say, Carter was starting from. And now the idea that, um, you know, Cameron and subsequent or previously the coalition started from a very uh, further right position than Thatcher began from or Blair began from. So, so yeah, did, did it work? Yeah. Um, two ways of answering that in terms of did it work? Um, in terms of what do we mean by asking whether a hegemonic project worked? Well, in the, in the terms of hegemony, I suppose, it's shaping the popular uh, mindset. Um, when I, you know, I'm revisiting this book a couple of years after writing and thinking how I might develop some of the, th- some of the themes in it, and I guess one of the oscillations is to what extent all of this hegemonic work or ideological work shapes articulations among the general population, or to what extent it responds to shifts in the population itself, Okay. Um, and that, and in some ways, that's undecidable. But we can, you know, that's the sort of thing that I would want to go. With. I mean, Sarkozy developed a set of themes that manifestly flew for a while, but then seemed to—it's almost like the sorcerer's apprentice lost control of his that uh, that initially hegemonic momentum as it shifted rightwards. And the other um, part of your question is really what I'm hoping to work on a bit now is that sense of whitening what the French sometimes call as a hypothesis the droitisation, the whitening of French society, and interpret that as much in sociological terms as in strictly political terms. Why is it that some of these right-wing cultural motifs play so resonantly among particular sections of the population? And one thing that, and just to chime with the question you were asking me there, one thing that um, I'd like to illustrate, for example, is this sense that 
um, the Socialist Party itself have lost the working class vote, for example. So in that sense, you could say that hegemonic <laughs> battle did <laughs> uh, did work out at, at some level. Um, and um, people's attempts to understand why that is, okay, the working class voters tended to peel off to the far right, the National Front, um, to some extent to the mainstream right, to a far less extent than you might think to the Front de Gauche, the far left party. And it's quite interesting, for example, to look at the difference between the programme of the far left, the Front de Gauche, which we don't have an equivalent of in the UK, and certainly not in the US, really. Um, if you look at the difference between their programme and the programme of the National Front, economically, socially, there's not a big difference. They're protectionist, they're anti-globalisation, they're anti-Europe, they're really anti-neoliberal, both the far right and the far left. The key difference is cultural, okay? Um, and there's, I, I don't really want to take sides on this particular debate because it's the problem I want to try and work on, but there's this debate in the left on whether they've neglected issues of cultural security, as they put it, which has thrown a lot of the working class, lower working class into the hands of the far right, or whether you, know, you should take account of those because to do so is already to give the racist game away, as it, as it were. Um, so to go back to your original question, did it work? <laughs> um, there's clearly been a ripening of uh, French society, I think, uh, in terms of attitudes, in terms of electoral results. Mm. Okay, Hollande lot won the presidentials, but in every election since then, the left has been whitewashed and the far right has either come first or second. Okay, So in terms of answering your question, I would say... Hard to answer, and the kind of stuff I do in the book, you could either see as a cause of that writing in terms of how laicite is reconfigured as a possible uh, nationalist motive. So it could be a cause, but could equally be a symptom of that motif, because once it plays well, they accentuate it and, and so on. So, sorry, that's a bit of a cop-out as an answer, but it just, um, it's a kind of sort of thing I'm thinking through at the moment, really. And it's like going to be a book or one day, maybe, but a little way of it. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. David O'Brien from Goldsmiths, University of London. On this episode, I was talking to Professor Jeremy Ahern from the University of Warwick about government through culture and the contemporary French right, which was published by Palgrave in 2015.